Timothy chapter 6 this morning. First Timothy chapter 6. I want to start out uh, with a quick uh, prayer request. Uh, we mentioned this Wednesday and wanted to mention this uh, today too. Uh, some of you may remember at a Heart to Heart that we did a couple years ago, we had a pastor from Columbus that uh, good friends with from a Calvary down there. His name is Dave Brown. Dave came uh, up here and taught at the Heart to Heart Valentine special, and he stuck around and did a Sunday morning a couple years ago. Uh, we've been talking to the family there, and uh, they have found uh, brain tumors throughout Dave's uh, uh, body there. They did some biopsies, and they're getting test results this coming Wednesday. So please uh, continue to keep the Brown family in prayer. That's Pastor Dave from Calvary Chapel, Columbus, and his wife Carla and their family, and they're going to be getting test results uh, this coming Wednesday. So just please continue to keep them in prayer. And also, too, on a uh, little bit lighter note, we're kind of excited here. Uh, got a new addition to the body that's making uh, his first appearance today, uh, Philip Reedy. Is Philip in here, or did he just leave? He's there. Rochelle's in the back there to my left. Uh, Philip was born July 4th at a healthy 10 pounds, 2 ounces, and... Uh, you're making a comment, but how big was, was Lee? No, Logan was the biggest, right? He was 11 too. So, so they're healthy babies. They're good babies. And uh, she's got three little guys back there. And so they get a chance to go back there and love on Rochelle and Philip and Josh and say congratulations to them. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be finishing up 1 Timothy this morning. Uh, it's been a fun book, an exciting book. And we're going to go ahead and finish it up here today. And let's do the smart thing. Let's just pray real quick. As always, Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this message. You teach, we listen through your spirit, Lord. And uh, Lord, just ask for your blessing upon VBS. We just, as always, ask for your blessing upon our nation. Just godly wisdom, Lord, to truly seek you. And for all of our men and women serving, Lord, just keep them safe and bring them home safe. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Alrighty, 1 Timothy chapter 6, finishing up our study here in 1 Timothy. We've been working through 1 Timothy for a couple months, and as you've heard, I think I mention this every message, the key passage in 1 Timothy is found in verse 14 of chapter 3. Paul writes, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. The purpose of this book is to teach us as a church how we're supposed to be a church. And the key points that have come up is as a church, we want to give you a time of worship, a time of fellowship, an opportunity for service, a time to come and have evangelism, and also a time to instruct you in how you're supposed to live your life. So often we get church backwards. The reason you're here today is to be taught, encouraged, so that way you then go out into wherever you work, wherever you live, and you shine and be a light and a witness for Christ. We're here to build you up, encourage you, then to send you out to go do those things as you go into the mission field. And so that is what we've been talking about here through 1 Timothy. The way Paul generally writes is the first few chapters of his books, first chapter is usually an introduction, followed by some chapters on theology. The last couple of chapters are usually what I call practical Christianity. Let's put this all into play. Last week we really hit that hard. This week as we finish up chapter 6, there's five key words, five key words that I want you guys to focus on. And I put those up here and we're going to leave these up for a while because as we go through these words, I want you to focus on them. And if you note, some of them have different ones like flea run. Depending on your translation, it may word it a little bit differently. As we read through these passages and as we go through this today, remember these words and how they apply to our Christian walk. So, we're going to read verses 11 through 16 and 20 and 21, because we did verses 17 through 19 last week, and then we will get started. Verse 11, it says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless unto our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. 
which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Then verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. First word to look at, verse 11, flee or run. Flee or run. Now, that's a word we use a lot. We use that phrase a lot in life, run for your lives, things along that type of line. I shared a story at the 8.30. I'll share here real quick. Have you ever had a time in your life where you truly had to run? Run for your life or run to get out of danger. We use that phrase a lot, but has that ever really happened? I had one that happened uh, uh, back in the end of December. I was out going for a run, and I was running by one of the houses where we live, and this guy has a lot of dogs and has a lot of dogs. And um, he has an electric fence set up. And so the dogs usually come up to the edge of the electric fence. They look at me, they bark, I yell, hi, pooch, and we, I run. It's kind of a love-hate relationship. And so what happened was he got new dogs, and I didn't know about this. And they weren't on the electric fence. And so I ran uh, by the house, and next thing you know, the dogs come running up to me. They usually stop at the electric fence. But this time, some of them didn't. And so the dogs came, there was three of them, and they kind of encircled me, and they stopped, and I got bit, got bit pretty good there. And I tried to run. <laughs> I ran as fast as I could. Now, somebody else, a couple of people have told me this, and I'm not trying to pick on you when I say this, but generally someone will come up and say, well, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stop. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I had three dogs trying to bite me. I'm not going to stop. I'm just not going to do that. So instincts take over. I flee. I run. Fastest I've ever ran. Had a good mile time. And so things worked out really good. But I still got bit. Sometimes in life, you just have to run. Now, the problem is we don't like this as, as Americans, as Christians. We don't run. We stand. We fight. Sometimes God says run. Think of, think of all the options that he said here for run. Right here, you're supposed to flee these things. What things? We're supposed to flee greed, discontent. That's the passage that we're talking about. If you're taking notes, you can write these down and go back to them later. 1 Corinthians 6.18. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14. 1 Corinthians 10.14. Flee idolatry. 2 Timothy 2.22, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. There's times in your life where you're just supposed to run from stuff. Don't stand and fight, just run. The problem is I sometimes see Christians like, you know what, I'm going to go to this party. And, you know, I, I got a problem with the drinking or whatever it is, and so I'm just not going to drink any alcohol when I get there. I'm just going to have a can of pop. No, just flee. Just run. Well, you know what, I got this problem with this girl at work or this guy at work. You know, it's kind of an inappropriate relationship. I shouldn't be talking to her. I shouldn't be flirting with him, whatever. So I'm just going to say hi to him and just ask how they're doing. No, flee. Run. Well, the problem is we don't want to run. We think we're strong enough to stand there and take it. I used to think that. I used to think by me avoiding the temptation, I used to think, well, I'm not a strong enough Christian because as a Christian I should be strong enough to put myself in the fire through the Spirit to stay strong. You read through the Bible, and if you can find a passage, I would like to hear it, because I can't find one, where God says, no, stay in temptation. Jump in the fire. See how strong you are. No, when it comes to temptation, God's general response is, get out of there. Flee. Flee greed and discontent. Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. Flee youthful lust. He says, run from them. Don't even try to stand there and fight it. Just get out of there. Now, if you see one of the words up there is fight. We'll get to that in a little bit because there are times where you are supposed to fight. But generally speaking, God says if it's a temptation, the best answer is just leave. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 39, please. Genesis 39. 
In Genesis 39, you get a great story of Joseph and how he fled. Now, a little bit of background as you're going to Genesis 39. If you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers were very jealous of him. And so, therefore, Joseph was a slave now in Egypt. His brothers faked his death, went back and told Dad, Joseph's dead. Well, really, Joseph was living in Egypt. Well, as Joseph had been taken as a slave to Egypt, he started serving at this guy Potiphar, his house. Well, God was blessing Joseph, and next thing you know, Joseph was running the house. If you will, he was chief of staff. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor, Genesis 39, verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and served him, Potiphar. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from that time that he had made him overseer of his house, and all he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was that she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Now that's not being weak. That's not being a spiritual wimp. He didn't sit there and say, Now listen, I told you we shouldn't do this. He ran. I think it was J. Vernon McGee that said this. He may have lost his garment, but he kept his purity. There's a lot of truth to that. Now why don't we run more? Why is it when we're at work and everybody's around the table and everybody starts gossiping, why don't we just get up and leave? Oh, we don't want anybody to think anything. We're not trying to be judgmental. We want to be part of the group. I don't want to cause problems. No, flee. Why is it when, you know, you get online and you're like, okay, I'm getting bored, and next thing you know, you're going places you shouldn't? Flee. We have to run from those things that cause problems. And once again, sometimes we have this mindset of, I need to be strong enough to fight through it. The way God says to get through it is just to run from it. Think about those things that pull you down. Think about those sins and temptations that are a struggle from you. How many of those could be avoided if you just led? You just didn't put yourself in those situations. How much better would things go spiritually for you? So the first thing is flee. And as you run, the next word is pursue or follow. What are we supposed to pursue and follow? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Reminds me a lot of the fruits and spirit in Genesis chapter 5. So as we flee those things that cause problems, we now pursue those things that are good for us. Look at these words real quick. Righteousness. Righteousness is a big word that really means to do what's right. So we're supposed to pursue doing what's right. We know what's right. This happens a lot. Someone calls me up. They come into my office and say, Pastor, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Tell me the situation. So they tell me the situation. So they get done telling me the situation. I say, well, what do you think you should do? They already have the answer. There's very few times in life that you really don't know what the right thing to do is. The truth of the matter is we just don't want to do the right thing. It's too difficult. It's too hard. We know what righteousness is, right living. Next one, godliness means to be godlike. And it doesn't mean to be godlike in power and majesty. It means in our character traits, how we live our lives. I want to be godlike. I want to be Christ-like in all that I do and say. So just ask yourself something. Are you doing what is right, righteousness? Or is there something in your life that you know, I know it's wrong? Well, then you need to make it right. Do what's right. Godliness. Are your character traits as the way you present yourself? Is it a picture of Christ? Is it a picture of the Lord? Because that's what we're supposed to be doing here, is being a picture of God. How's your faith? Is your walk going strong? How's your love? How about your patience? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? I have people that come up to me a lot and say, would you please pray for me? Why? I 
always get stuck with the person at work that tries my patience. That's usually God's way of doing that on purpose. Because if you have a problem with patience, what's the only way to learn patience? Is to go through impatient scenarios and situations. So patience is one we're looking on, and last one, gentleness. So often I see Christians presented as we're mad and mean and ticked and angry, and we're not going to take it anymore. Nah, gentleness. Showing love to all. So think about this. First off, number one, verse 11, have you fled those things that are bringing you down? Once again, that list, think about this. The greed, the discontentment, sexual immorality, idolatry, youthful lust. Have you fled those things? And are you pursuing what's right? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. How simple is it? We know what we're supposed to do in life. We know how we're supposed to act. We kind of got this little unwritten rule at our house. If any of the boys go behind the couch, we know that they're usually doing something wrong. There's nothing to do behind the couch except get in trouble. And so when they go behind the couch and they cower down and they usually are taking something and putting something from their hand to their mouth, we know they're doing that something they're not supposed to do. Now, how do they know that? They know that because there is the spirit that lives inside of them. God already says this is right from wrong. Laden, who's only a year and a half, he'll come up to us, we're sitting on the couch, he'll grab the remote and run full speed out of the room. Just as quick as he can. That little guy's got sin nature. We know right from wrong. Once again, I really doubt there's too many situations in life that you can sit here right now and say, gosh, I don't know what God would want me to do. Now, you may not know God's calling, you may not know God's leading, but just pure simple, is it right or wrong? You probably know where the Lord's leading. So we're supposed to flee those things that cause harm, and we're supposed to pursue those things which are good. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Now just stop right there for a second. How much better would your life be your witness be, your marriage be, your relationships be, if you did that simple verse 11. You fled those things that cause problems. Greed, discontentment, sexual morality, idolatry, youthful lust. You fled them, and instead you always pursued righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. How simple would life be, and how much better would things just go? Now the next one, fight. Ah, this is where we finally get to fight, right? I've run into some Christians that are really good at fighting. They'll fight about anything. This is not the fighting we're talking about here. This is fight the good fight of faith. Now that's important. Fight the good fight of faith. There are things I'm supposed to flee. There's things I'm also supposed to fight for. If someone comes up to me and I'm having a conversation with them and they happen to say something the fact that, well, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. I don't say, oh, run. I stay and fight. I say, now wait a second here, well, let's talk about this for a second. If someone comes up to me and says, you know what, I don't know if this whole Bible is God's word thing. I think, you know, some of it's man, some of it's God's. Oh, I better flee this conversation. No, I stay and fight. Because I fight the good fight of faith. Now, just be honest. You, you know in your heart what things you're supposed to fight for and what things you're supposed to let go of. I mean, you know that. And so what we need to do as Christians is realize, what battles does God want us to fight? I will, I will fight anybody, and I don't mean physically, I will fight anybody over theology. If they want to come up and start saying something wrong about the Bible that's not biblically true, that's my responsibility as a Christian to say, no, that's not right. I'm not going to let the nature of Christ be put down. I'm not going to let the God's word be stomped upon. I will fight for the good fight of faith. There's other things in life where you just have to realize, let it go. We need to know what we're supposed to fight for and what we're supposed to realize that, hey, that's something I'm supposed to run from. Turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song, if you will. Last book that he wrote, he knew that his death was coming, and he wrote to Timothy his final words of encouragement of what he's supposed to do. And if you look in the last chapter of 2 Timothy 4, as we get down to the final words of Paul's life, he mentions fighting. 2 Timothy 4, look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now think about that. Have you done verse 7? Have you fought the good 
fight. I'm not saying have you fought. We all fight. Have we fought the good fight? There are some fights that are good. There are some fights that are edifying. There are some times we have to put our foot down. This is something I see a lot in Christianity is we don't realize we're in a battle. My goodness, we have Christians that don't realize it's a battle. People will come up sometimes and say, why is Christianity so hard? And sometimes my answer is, whoever said it was easy? I can't find a verse that says it's easy. Now some of you may be thinking, nope, I got you on this one. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Have you ever carried a yoke? <laughs> I don't care what size the yoke is. The yoke is still a burden. It's still a weight that you're carrying. It's tough to be a Christian. In a non-believing world, it's tough to be a believer. Pastor Rich says this all the time. He goes, I got three things against me. My flesh is against me, Satan's against me, and the world's against me. Wherever I turn, something's against me. It's a battle. And so what happens is because we know it's a battle and we know we're supposed to fight, that's why God gave us in Ephesians 6 this great armor we're supposed to wear. And if you get time today, go find some time and go read in Ephesians 6. And it talks about all the different armor of God we're supposed to put on as a Christian. Before we go into battle, we're supposed to put this armor on. Here's the problem. Some Christians don't remember that they're in a battle. So they go out into the world, to the workforce, to their marriage, to their kids, whatever it is, and they're not ready to fight. They have no armor whatsoever. What do you think is going to happen to them? First thing you should do when you get up in the morning is what? Put on your spiritual armor. Maybe some of you need to wear your armor to bed. Point is, you have to be ready for the fight. This is what happens. We get up in the morning. We're in our peaceful little morning. We do our morning routine. We say goodbye, whatever. We go to work. Finally, we get into work. We clock in, and the fight happens, and we realize, wait a second. I'm not ready for this. I don't have my armor on. I'm not prepared. That is why you never go out to battle without your gun, without your armor, without being prepared. God says, be prepared. It's a fight. It's a battle. And if you as a Christian lose that perspective, you're going to get beaten and bruised in this world. You will. We have to have our armor on, realizing it is a fight, and we have to fight the good fight of faith. There are things we don't back down on. If someone you know, a loved one comes and says, well, I'm going to do this, and you know what's wrong, pray. The Lord may be leading you to say, I love you enough to tell you it's wrong. We fight that good fight. We don't fight the fight just to win the argument. We fight the good fight to present God's word and the truth of what it is. So after we flee, after we pursue, and after we fight, what's the next thing here in verse 12? It says, Lay hold an eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Next one is confess. Some of your translations may say profess. So, God's not repetitious. If he chooses in the span of two verses, verses 12 and 13, to use the word confess, confession, and confession, I think he's trying to make a point here. What does it mean to confess? See, the problem is when we think of confess, we think of to admit. We confess our sins. That's not what that word really means. That word really means to agree with. So when you confess your sins, what you're really doing is not just admitting your sins. I know people that have admitted their sins, and they're not repentant. Confession means to agree with. So when you confess your sins, you're agreeing with God it's wrong. What it literally means is there's a line in the sand, and you cross over that line, and you see it from that other person's perspective, and you say, I confess, you're right. I agree with you, it's wrong. So when I confess my sins, I'm agreeing with God that I'm wrong, that I sinned. So when I have a confession of faith, that means I am agreeing with God on what my faith is. Now think about what that means, because the vast majority of the people that live in this world today will what? claim to be Christians. Are they really confessing their faith? Because when you confess your faith, you're agreeing with God. Well, what did God say? Well, God said that Jesus is the only way to heaven. The Bible says that Jesus was the Son of God that came down in the form of man. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Jesus is what bridges the gap between heaven and hell. Jesus is the only way that you can have salvation. So when you confess your Christian faith, that's what you're saying. 
See, I know a lot of people that claim to be Christians, but they believe in many different paths, many different ways. But are you really not confessing Christianity? See, Jesus also said every word of the book is true about me. So that means Jesus believed Genesis through Revelation. So that means when I confess my faith, that means I believe Genesis through Revelation. See, when you confess your faith, it means you're agreeing with who Christ is. You're agreeing with what the Bible says. It's a big term. It means something. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I believe in God. You know how many people believe in God? You know how many people, I'm a Christian? Confession means to agree with God on what he says is true. If you're not agreeing with what God is saying is true, then you really don't have the right confession. Let's talk about this. Let's build on this a little bit. Go to Romans 10, please. Let's talk about what it means to confess our faith. Romans 10, please. You've heard us say out here numerous times before the two W's in life. God has created us to worship and to witness. Part of our witness is our confession of our faith. Romans 10. Let's go ahead and start here in Romans 10, and uh, let's start with verse 8. It says, but what does it say, Romans 10, 8? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Let's just stop right there for a second. The word is in you, it's in your mouth, and in your heart. God has designed you and created you to be a light and a witness in all you do and say. That is why you're here. You're here to confess Christ. The word is in you, it's in your heart, it's in your mouth. What happens is, and I'm not picking on anybody or thinking anybody in particular, but every now and then I run into a Christian that says, well, I don't really feel like I need to say anything about the Lord. Well, I think Romans 10.8 would disagree with you. I feel like my, my, my walk, my, the way I live my life, that's good enough. No, God has given you a mouth. Use it. The reason you're supposed to confess the Lord is he has given you and he's put his word, eternity, Jesus, in your heart. So therefore you can tell other people about it. I'm all for letting your actions speak loud. I'm all for living the life. But I'm also all for telling people about Christ. Look at verse 9 of Romans 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Part of my beliefs, part of what I believe, is that I also tell people what I believe. I confess Christ. I agree with what he says, so therefore I tell people about Jesus. How are people supposed to come know about Christ unless we're telling them about Christ? Christ. Our actions are important, but our words are important just as well. And we need to pray for opportunities to confess Christ. Just those day-in, day-out opportunities just to be a light and a witness. And I don't necessarily mean hardcore evangelism. I'm just saying opportunities to say, I'm praying for you. I pray that God of comfort will be with you. It sounds like you're going through a difficult time, and I know the Lord's there for you. Or you know what? Just those type of confession. We had something that happened recently. We had a salesman pop into our house. Good guy, good kid going through college, trying to sell stuff. And so he came to the house, and we made it clear that we weren't going to buy anything. Um, but he kept talking, which is fine. And he came in, sat down. He kept showing us stuff. We kept saying, we'll watch, we'll listen, but we're not going to buy anything. Offered him a glass of water and, you know, whatever we could do. And he finally said, so funny, he finally said, um, he goes, man, you guys are so nice. Most people won't even answer the door. They just shut the door in my face. And he said, come on in. And we said, it's an opportunity. We said, hey, you know, we're as Christians, love the Lord. We're not going to buy anything, but we'll sit down and talk to you. And it was a neat opportunity to get a chance to at least tell them, hey, love of the Lord, we're here to sit, we're here to listen. And it was a good confession of faith. Now, did he hit his knees and accept Jesus? No. I thought about tying him up, though, until he did. But I didn't. it's just a brief thought, just a brief thought. Point, though, is it's just those little things. See, so often we think, well, evangelism means that I have to be leading people to Christ every single hour of the day, and I'm just constantly handing out the four spiritual law tracts and just leading people to Jesus. That'd be great. Evangelism also is just telling people about the Lord and confessing your faith openly in how you live and how you act, but also in your words. 
It's confession. And God says, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy here, is the good confession. We're supposed to be open about what we believe. Turn, if you will, though, to um, Matthew chapter 10. Because what happens if you're not? Matthew chapter 10. People are different personalities. I don't have a problem public speaking, obviously. Um, I don't have a problem talking to people. I know people that truly love the Lord. Man, they had to talk in front of people. I don't know what they would do. There are certain things we're good at. Certain things were not. I've told you numerous times, I'm not really good with kids. But guess who's leading up the four-year-old group at VBS? You know why? Because none of you losers signed up to lead the four-year-old group. And so guess whose wife is the director of VBS? So guess whose wife came and said, we need somebody to lead up the four-year-olds. I'm leading up the four-year-olds. So if you have a four-year-old in that group, I take no responsibility for what happens. Matthew 10, verse 32. It says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I, him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now, that's a nice verse. I confess Christ. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe everything that Jesus said. I believe God's word. I confess Christ. So, therefore, Jesus says, I'll confess you. When I die and stand before God the Father, and God the Father says, why should you go into heaven? Jesus says, no, I got him. I confess him. He's mine. We agree. We're on the same page. I'm a Savior. He believes I'm a Savior. I died for his sins. He believes that I died for his sins. He believes. So I confess him. Jesus confesses me. It's a nice package deal. So that's how I have entrance into heaven. Through Christ. Not through some ambiguous, I believe in God. Not in through some ambiguous, I believe in a higher power. I believe in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, I confess him. He confesses me. Now, if we could just stop at verse 32, that would really be good. Problem is there's verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, him also I will deny before my Father is in heaven. I don't like that verse so much because I've denied Christ sometimes. Now, not, not outright, I don't believe, but moments of the Spirit leading, you should probably say more, no, Lord, I can't. Not now, not in this, no. This is not the time nor place, God. Or maybe times where I've shared some and God says, go one step further. Oh, Lord, I've already pushed it enough. I just need, I just need to step back. I'm denying the Lord. Now, does that mean I'm not saved? No, because we're going to build on this. But how many times in our Christian walk have we probably not confessed as openly as we should? How many times in our Christian walk have we kind of been a little embarrassed maybe by Jesus? And think about how much that must break his heart. I mean, he died on the cross for our sins. He loves us. And sometimes we're afraid to mention his name. Sometimes we're afraid to tell people about our relationship with them. Sometimes we're afraid to be a light and a witness. Don't you think sometimes Jesus, not in anger, but maybe in hurt and frustration, just as I can. Confess me. Don't be ashamed of me. Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because what happened is people have denied him. Best example of that is Peter. Now you remember Peter's story. The day before Jesus is supposed to be crucified, Christ comes and tells everybody, you guys are all going to leave me. Peter, not me. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Everybody else may leave you and forsake you, but not me. So Peter goes out, and what happens? Peter denies Christ three times. Now, the situations were very difficult. Do you remember the one person that Peter denied him Christ to? Yes, the little girl. Do you remember her? Little girls are very scary. So here's Peter, big burly fisherman that have seen dead people raised. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. He walked on water, and a little girl came and said, Are you not with Jesus? Peter got scared and freaked out and said, No, denied him. Now, they're, wait a second. No, you are with him. The Bible says Peter starts swearing. No, I'm not. Denied him again. Peter denied him three times. And you remember what the one gospel account says? As soon as Peter denied him three times, what did Jesus do? Looked at him. Now, my personal opinion, take it or leave it, I don't think it was a look of anger. I don't think it was a look of mad. 
give us a look of hurt. Peter, everything we've been through, I, you, you denied me. I think Jesus, my personal opinion, I think Jesus was hurt. And in the Bible says that as soon as Peter saw Jesus, what did he do? He just wept. Just wept. Now, if the Bible ended there, how sad would it be? But thankfully, we get to go on. Because the Bible says after Christ rose from the dead, the one time when he was talking to a group of people, who did Jesus mention specifically by name? Tell Peter that I have risen. Tell Peter that I have risen. It was important to Christ for Peter specifically to know that I am risen. Because Jesus wanted to build a relationship back with Peter. Even though Peter denied him, Jesus wanted to still build a relationship with him. Now, the Bible doesn't end there. Because then you go to the breakfast on the sea where Jesus specifically takes Peter aside and one-on-one -on -one does what to Peter? Restores him. And Peter becomes a pillar of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. Aren't you thankful that you may have had some Matthew 10, 33 moments in your life? Yeah, you denied. You could have said more. You should have said more. You wanted to say more, but you didn't. You were scared. You were nervous. You were flesh. We've all been there. Aren't you thankful that the God of the universe looks at you lovingly wants to restore you by name, and then will seek you out to make things right with you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Aren't you glad with Jesus is not just a one and done? I gave you one opportunity. You denied me. It screwed up. It's over. Now, he wants to rebuild that relationship with us. And so maybe of this lesson today, you're doing good on the fleeing. You're doing good on the pursuing. You're doing good on the fighting. But maybe the whole confession of Christ thing is your weak point. Aren't you thankful that maybe there's been missed opportunities? Maybe there have been times you should have said more. Aren't you glad that God restores you? Think about how many non-believers you run into on a daily basis. How many people you have an opportunity just to confess Christ to. Or how many believers you run into that you can encourage. Now, this is the one thing I've seen anytime I've ever led up a small group. Is if you have one person that is open about their faith, it's infectious. That one person is talking about who they've had a chance to share with. And other people say, well, wait a second. This is really what we're supposed to do. So I, I really thought Christianity was I come, I worship, I sing, I go home, I read, I teach, whatever. I'm supposed to tell people. I'm supposed to confess Christ. What a blessing it is. It's a privilege and an honor to be able to tell the world about Jesus. We have to remember that perspective that we have. And you may be thinking right now, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I encourage you, if you're new to the faith, need to pick me up in the faith, need a refresher in the faith, Discipleship classes are starting here first Sunday in August. I encourage you to start going through those. You'll be blessed by it, and you'll get a good foundation of what you believe, how to verbalize this and confess this. I highly encourage you to get involved with that. You can see Pastor Rich if you're interested in that. So let's move on now to our last word here in this lesson. We've had flee. We've had, um, we've had flee. We've had pursue. We've had fight. We've had confess. Last one, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard. Now, this is an ongoing point that we've had in numerous messages on Wednesdays and on Sundays. That you as a believer have a sphere, a circle of ministry that you're responsible for. You have some people in your life that you are responsible for spiritually. And I don't mean you're responsible to see them get saved. But you, God has put that person in your life that you can be an encouragement to their walk, to be a witness to them if they're not saved, to encourage them and uplift them. Now, Corinthians comes right out and calls it a sphere of influence. I don't know what that circle or sphere is. It may be your spouse, maybe your kids, maybe your coworkers, it may be a ministry out here at church. I don't know what your is is, but you have a circle. And if you think you're the only person in the circle, then you're missing out. You have a circle, and the point is you want your circle to be as big as you possibly can. Some people talk about stepping out of their comfort zone. Don't step out of your comfort zone. I heard somebody say this one time, and I'll steal it from him. He said, broaden your comfort zone. Broaden it. Make it bigger. So therefore, you have more people to spiritually influence. 
What is your circle? I don't know. You have to pray and seek the Lord. For me, it's my wife, it's my kids, it's Harvest Fellowship Church. That's my circle of influence, my circle of ministry that I'm responsible for. So therefore, I want to guard that. If something comes into my circle, be it my boys or my wife, that's going to try to cause spiritual harm, it's my job to protect them through the Lord. If somebody wants to come into this church and speak false teaching and theology, it's my job to protect the church, to guard that. If I see something in one of your lives that is going to hurt you spiritually, it's my job to guard you, to say, hey, I love you enough to point you in the right direction. I can't change you. I can't force you to do anything. But I can guard what was committed to me. Paul told Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Everybody has a ministry. Everybody does. I don't know what your ministry is, but everybody has a ministry. It may just be as simple as your spouse, your kids. You may be all your coworkers. You may be leading a small group study. You may have a ministry opportunity at church. You may have unsaved friends and loved ones. I don't know, but you have a circle of ministry that you're spiritually responsible for. And God says, guard it. Now, here's the problem. Generally speaking, we don't like responsibility. So we try to make our circle as tiny as possible. But God says, I want you to enlarge your circle as much as possible so you have more opportunities to encourage and uplift people. Because God says, I've given you something. That phrase right there in verse 20, guard what was committed to your trust, that phrase committed to your trust, literally means deposit. God says, James, I have deposited things in your spiritual life and you're responsible for them. I'm responsible for my wife. I'm responsible for my boys. I'm responsible for this church. God says, I have deposited that in your life. Now guard it. So think about this for a second. Let's put this all together. How simple is this message? What things are you supposed to flee from? Just think about that. What's in your life right now that's causing damage and harm to you spiritually? What are you supposed to flee from? Run from it. Number two, what are you supposed to pursue? Right living, righteousness, godliness, Christ-like, faith, love, patience, gentleness. How is that going? Pursue those things. The next one, fight. What opportunities do am I supposed to step up and make a stand for the faith? to make a stand for what's right and fight for the truth. The next one, confess. What opportunities do I have to speak the truth about Jesus, to confess with my mouth that Christ is Lord? Not only in actions and deeds, but also in words. And lastly, guard. What has God given to me that's been committed to me that I'm responsible spiritually for to do what I can to encourage them and uplift them? I have to stress this. You're not responsible to see anybody get saved. You're not Jesus. You're responsible to point them towards the cross hopefully they want it. This is how Paul ends his letter to Timothy. Once again, how simple and right would life be if we flee what was wrong, pursue what is good, fight for what's true and right, confess Christ, and guard what God has given us. If you do those five simple things, my goodness, you'll be right where God wants you to be. What a blessing that will be. I encourage you to do that. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. Just